0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Eva Hagberg, author of the book When Arrow Met His Match, Aline Lusheim Serin and the Making of an Architect. Eva, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, Mark. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
1: Um, well, I'm currently in a tent, which I think is a is a, is a fun fact. Uh, I, uh, I just got a, a new sort of workspace apartment. Um, and as a moderately experienced podcast guest, I learned to think about, you know, sonic implications of recording. And so just to set the scene, I'm next to my five-month-old daughter's crib, which is holding up one end of the tent and a stack of prototypes designed by my partner Paul Lobach, which is holding up the other end of the tent. So I guess I'm sort of between my two loves uh, and about to talk about, you know, my favorite thing, which is ideas and and gossip of the past and uh, kind of sexting through the centuries, as I once referred to my to my book. So it's a lot of a lot of things about myself.
0: And that's one of the things I I thought was so fascinating about your book is that, you know, every book I I find is ultimately a reflection of the authors as much as anything else. But it's like your book is even more so. It's such a fascinating examination, not just of this famous 20th century architect and this fascinating relationship he had with his wife, but also it's a a testament to your journey as well. What led you to write the book and, and, and to adopt the approach that you did in it?
1: Yeah, so the so the book has a couple origins, and the earliest origin is uh, is grad school, uh, right? In the great uh, tradition of many first academic books, um, and I was in a new relationship, and I remember I was sort of like in love, and and really just like feeling myself and being really intense about it, and I stumbled across a an article, I think in Design Observer, about the love letters between Erosarn and an architect that I was sort of moderately familiar with, and Aline Luheim, who, who I'd never heard of. And I sort of followed the trail, and I found this incredible archive at the Smithsonian, um, at the Archives of American Art, and I started reading these letters. And at first, I thought, this is amazing. This is about love. This is giving me permission to be super extra, And then I started realizing that actually Aline was writing about publicity and media, and I had just written a master's thesis about publicity and media, and I was really interested in kind of exploring more of that. And I thought to myself, maybe there's a bigger project here. So I pursued it, I put together, you know, a really sort of interesting interdisciplinary committee, my, my degree is in an interdisciplinary field called visual and narrative culture. And I was really interested in exploring kind of the relationship between images and text and um, especially in, in architecture, where I think a lot of architects uh, believe that a building speaks for itself. And my book is in many ways, a corrective to that idea. Um, I think language speaks for itself and and we apply language to a building. Um, So that was sort of the intellectual origins of the project. And then the book actually came to be, um, I met Michelle Comey, my incredible editor at the Society for Architectural Historians conference. And I said, oh, you know, I'm working on a project about the Saarinen's. And the draft that I sent to her had one and a half pages about myself. And I, it was a preface and I just said, listen, you know, I worked as an architectural critic. I also worked as a publicist. So basically trust me on my analysis of the media. And when she sent it out for peer review, one of the reviewers said, you know, I think that this book is great, but I really think it needs much more of your personal story and your experiences working in publicity. and you know i've been so kind of indoctrinated in the academy to to always i mean i love what you said that books are always a reflection of the author i agree completely and i think that there is this myth in the academy that you know the 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 true scholar is the person who simply encounters an idea which is inherently interesting for for no personal reason and pursues that idea out of some sort of again like pure devotion to intellectual exploration. And no, I think everybody is just working out their own issues through whatever medium they can find, um, whether that's history, ornithology, sociology, whatever. So I but I had to sort of unindoctrinate myself. And I remember talking to Michelle and and I said, well, you know, I I'd be happy to write about to write about myself, but I do feel some resistance, or I feel some, you know, nervousness that a really amazing academic press might not want to read about my bad boundaries with my clients and my, uh, you know, my, my inappropriate histrionics and my over-identification with Aline's uh, very thirsty love letters to Arrow. And Michelle said, you know, why don't you just write the book that you want to write with no boundaries? And we'll, we'll sort of figure it out. And so I just came up with a structure, which is, you know, a chapter about the historical relationship and, and you know, a pretty rigorous, I would say, analysis of, of both the archive, but also sort of these ideas about how architecture is represented and talked about, and also how love is represented and talked about, which is very important to me. And then there are these personal chapters where I talk about, my work as a freelance design journalist. I talk about my work as a publicist. I sort of start to like Aline and I sort of start to intersect in some ways, right. Where she was married to her client. I was never married to any of my clients, thankfully. Um, Although now, now I do represent my partner. uh, So, you know, (laughs) lessons either learned or not learned, we will see. Uh, But I, 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 I sort of, thought that that would be I don't know I mean the the freedom that Michelle gave me was amazing the suggestion that reviewer number two gave me was amazing and once I'd written it it hung together and it it seems like everybody agreed so that's why it's a, a sort of very I think you said before we started recording that you'd never read a book like it and I've heard that a lot and that is actually a uh, I'm, I, I'm sure it was meant as a compliment and I take it as a compliment every time. Um, I'm delighted to have written a book unlike any book anybody has ever read.
0: Well, it's a book that the, the, the approach you adopt makes over what a lot of historians prefer to, you know, keep behind the curtain, so to speak, which is the degree to which their personal uh, understanding and insights into the subject shape how they interpret it, and that's something that comes across uh, uh, in your uh, from the uh, starting with your chapter on women in the design world. And I was wondering if you could perhaps start with that, talk about that topic in general, and then how that perspective informed your understanding of Aline's career and her experiences within it. <sighs>
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, it was recently International Women's Day, which is one of these sort of, um, I don't want to sound cynical, right. But there's like, (laughs) let's celebrate women for a day. Like women have jobs too. I'm like, we're in the year of our Lord, 2023. Uh, so the, the topic of women and the design world is one that I think continues to be given a lot of attention. um, there, my colleague, Marianella DiPrilli, wrote this pretty great review of a recent book, I think, called Women in Architecture. And she sort of pointed out that, you know, we can, we can publish a book and we can have images of, of women architects, but we're not really changing the kind of systemic and, and structural issues that are still there. Um, and so I was interested in kind of taking stock of where we are today, where it is still unusual for a woman to run her own firm right? I mean, I think I can list on one hand, the number of women who run their own firms, not in partnership with, with a man. Um, and historically that was even more true when Aline was working. So 1950s, she was this very well-educated, Vassar educated New York times associate art critic. And she was kind of an iconoclast, you know, she was divorced. She had two children. She was supporting herself by working Um, but I needed to contextualize her, uh, a little bit, right. Because nobody emerges from a vacuum. And so I looked at sort of jumping around in in time and space here, but I needed to look at her and I was interested in her partnership with Arrow and I believe that her partnership with Arrow was a new type of partnership, right? So, to make that argument, I had to look at the other types of partnerships that had existed. So, you have Walter Gropius and Issa Gropius, you have Frank Lloyd Wright and Olga Vanna Lloyd Wright, you have Edward Durrell Stone and Maria Stone. These are all examples that I look at. You've um, Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown, you have Charles and Ray Ames, right? But those are all examples where either the wife is a fellow designer or a fellow architect, or She's kind of, in the case of Olga Vanna, she's kind of the charismatic megafauna who, you know, keeps things going, um, you know, allegedly, in Wright's case, arranges the orgies, you know, stuff like that. And Aline's role was very, very different, where she was a fully actualized professional in a completely different field than her partner. So that is kind of one way in which I wanted to map her. And I mean, I think you're, you know, I'm sort of struggling a little bit with this answer because I find great intellectual discomfort in presenting this text as sort of a, a, an explicitly feminist project, although it absolutely is. I mean, it is reinserting Aline into a history that she was written out of in ways that I show, you know, she was literally written out of various books about Saarinen. Um, Mm -hmm. but I, I sort of have this allergy to, you know, women can be architects too, and women can be designers too. And I just, you know, I have conflicted allergic feelings to it all. Um, but I opened the book with that chapter to sort of set the stage both contemporaneously and historically and sort of show, you know, we're about to learn something that you actually have not learned before, but here's what you probably have learned, right? You've probably heard of the Ameses. You've probably heard of Venturi and Scott Brown. You've probably heard of Issa Gropius. You've probably heard of Ogavonna Lloyd Wright. So let me show you that, like, I too know that history, you know, which is a very important sort of um, mechanic of the academic book. You know, some would call it a literature review. So... That was basically the the foundation for that chapter.
0: The thing about putting that chapter there, for me as a reader, was how it shaped how I then read your description of the relationship uh, in uh, the core of the book. Because while I you know, don't doubt from what you described that a- 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 Aileen loved uh, Arrow, uh, and uh was very was very passionate about it. the way that you present uh the relationship as reflected in the letters suggests that you know, as you know setting that love aside that in some ways being with him being married to him gave her an entree into being uh a a a uh different type of professional than she was basically it gave her a career opportunity. And, and, and I, I don't think she was mercenary about it, but at the same time, she definitely was taking advantage of, you know, the, of, of where her life had led her and was making the most of it uh, in, in the context of her time.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a really interesting read because my, my reading of it was that she was so in love with him and totally mercenary about being with him that she was willing to kind of sacrifice her career turn it into a different kind of career you know give up her glamorous life in new york city where she was on assignment for the new york times and move to bloomfield hills michigan and basically sit next to him and instead of thinking about lots of different architects and lots of different ideas just thinking about one you know, as later chapters show, she gets into a lot of kind of minutia at some point. So, um, you know, I, I I sort of analyze her earliest New York Times articles to show how incisive and informed and and sharp she is, and she's writing about Alvo and she's writing about you know uh, Alto, sorry Alvar Alto, um, and then she ends up sort of negotiating these very specific. Um, image rights with you know Cranston Jones at Architectural Records. she and Douglas Haskell in, in a sequence that I find sort of fascinating, are working out the new development of an exclusive, which was which just means that the magazine is the only one to have the pictures, which is now totally standard practice, but at the time was not. And she actually, this is jumping way ahead, but she actually got pretty bored. Um, And she, you know, at the end of their working relationship, there's these great letters that they send back and forth. And they, you know, Arrow says, writes, you know, Aline, please look at this. And Aline writes back and says, he says, please respond. And she says, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what you want. And, and, you know, it's just these these pages sort of stacked on top of each other of like increasingly shorter and snippier responses. And then my very last chapter is called, I am not interested in that project. I am not really interested in that project, quote, which is a direct line from a letter that she wrote to somebody asking her to write a book about Arrow. And she wrote, you know, I would like to confine my interest to those outside the office. So she, I think, in a way seems to have kind of regretted her wholesale Decision to focus solely on Arrow's career. I think after, you know, six or seven years, she was like, I want to write other books, I want to do other things. And the great, you know, the true irony of this is that he then died very suddenly. I mean, there were, there was two weeks notice of his death. And so they were sort of arguing, you know, as the letters show and, and not getting along super well. And um, she was kind of trying to do something else. And then he died and she had to actually commit herself even more to the office and to his legacy and to finishing TWA and to writing that book about him, even though she had just said she wasn't interested in that. So, I mean, I, I love your read. And I think mine is just a little bit, um, yeah, I think that she a little bit... I I think that she was very savvy and she saw an opening to develop a career, which I argue, you know, since she professionalized it has been done by many people and, and, you know, including me um, and is now very standard in the profession. But I really think it was just because she was like, you need to leave your wife. You need to marry me. Here's what I'm going to do for you. Let me sweeten the deal by like also saying I'm going to do a great job. And there are letters where she refers to herself as a job applicant. And she switches between personal applications, you know, I gotta say, the letters, some of which I was not able to put into the book, but the salaciousness of those letters is astonishing. (laughs) These people were getting down in the 50s. I mean, they were just like, they had nicknames for, it was great, it was amazing. And so she was saying, you know, on the one hand, like, let's not forget, you know, a couple Mm -hmm. nights ago, right, so I'm a very good applicant for the job, also, let's not forget that I'm friends with Nicholas Pezner, right, noted architecture critic. I'm friends with Philip Johnson, who, you know, was a curator at MoMA. So she's sort of saying, like, you can have it all with me. But I think that she did, in many ways, sacrifice a lot of her own ambition.
0: Yeah, and I, I didn't mean to diminish that. I, I think for me, it was the way that you, you have it in the book where it, I, I was more struck by how you present her in a sense as pioneering this role as an architectural publicist and it was one that as i was reading i was tying back to what you describe of your own experiences as, as an architectural publicist and how you see aline as this pioneer who yes she was sacrificing something because of her love for arrow but at the same time she then you know you know, takes the proverbial lemons and then makes them into the, this grand new lemon cake called called a, a, a new career path that that now uh, you and others have undertaken
1: i was gonna say i am drinking that lemonade right like i'm <laughs> absolutely enjoying the the fruits of her labor many many years later
0: so that and i was curious to, to if you could kind of talk a bit about then how how that experience of yours informed how you approach, because that's such a, an integral part of your book that how you take that experience as a publicist and how you use that to interpret what Aline was doing and, and how really you, you saw her as that pioneer.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I started the project before I started working as a publicist. Um, but it was pretty simultaneous. So I'd been a design writer uh, you know, I studied architecture undergrad. I moved to New York with you know a hundred dollars and a duffel bag and a dream, and it was the right time to do that. Uh, so I had sort of the right mentors, and just very quickly was a pretty successful design writer. And I remember when I first thought I was going to be an architecture critic, I imagined myself kind of walking around the city, and and I would see a building, and then I would like draft, you know, 7,000 words and 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 somebody would just magically publish it, right? That's how I thought it worked. And I discovered within I think 2 to 3 weeks that that was not how it was going to work, but that there were these gatekeepers, and actors who were publicists, and I remember not understanding who they worked for in a way. So there was one publicist who was really 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 good at her job. And I remember she took me to breakfast at Balthazar. And I was, I mean, bear in mind, I was 21 years old. I was broke beyond belief. I did not have a trust fund. I was literally sleeping on people's like wooden floors on the lower east side because my apartment had kind of fallen through and I was like crashing. And so I got taken to Balthazar with my like ripped jeans. And she said, like, you know, I have this project and and it's, you know, it's really cool. It's by Herzog and Demarron. It's um the project was 56 Leonard and she said, you know, I'll send you the images. And I was like, God, like, she is really looking out for me, you know, like I'm, cause I'm going to make $600 off of this article, you know, which at the time was a lot of money to me. Um, And it took me a long time to realize that like, she'd been hired by the developer to promote the project And so her sending me images was not a favor to me necessarily (laughs) because I was like, so sorry to bother you. Do you have more images? And she was like, here you go. Of course I do. I mean, I really like Mark. I just didn't get it, you know? And then I started to realize like, oh, these publicists are sending me projects. And then I put the projects in magazines which I'm super motivated to do because I'm trying to develop a career as a, as an architecture critic. So I think I'm winning, right? Like I think that I'm getting the goods and in a way I am, right. I explained to a colleague recently, like the publicists were, were doing a really, really good job. by sort of making, like finding a very motivated writer, right? I was very motivated because I needed to pay my rent. Um, so the point of that is that I was the recipient of really excellent publicity And so I just sort of filed that away, right? As I sort of went on in my career, I sort of realized like, okay, publicists are really central and every editor expects that you're going to have a publicist and not having a publicist is very odd if you're an architect. And then I went to grad school and I remember learning sort of basic history and theory and realizing that a lot of historians use the media as an archive, right? So they would say, well, this architect was written about, you know, this many times. So they probably deserved it in some way, or, you know, their architecture was better. And I was like, no, 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 that person was represented by this firm, which I know really well, or that publicist had, you know, that's why this person won the Pritzker. Like, yes, they're very talented, but also here's this extra actor. So that's how I sort of was holding the reality that there were publicists. And then a friend of mine introduced me to a firm who wanted me to do some sort of freelance copywriting for their website. I said, great. You know, I wrote a project, project descriptions, wrote website text, and then they brought me in for a meeting and they said, well, we actually want, you know, a marketing person. Could you do marketing? And I said, well, I don't know how to do marketing, but I, but I could do PR. Um, and so I wrote up a proposal in 10 minutes and I just said, you know, here's all the people that I know. Um, and I can, I can do PR for you. And they said, great. And I worked with them and we had a great time. We published a bunch of their projects and then they referred me to another. So it really was very happenstance. Like I never set out to become a publicist. And then by the time I had four or five clients, I thought, okay, this is really happening. And then I had this kind of exponential growth in my company. I hired two almost full-time employees. Uh, This was sort of 2018, 2019. Um, At some point, I had, I think, 11 clients, two employees. I was in New York. One employee was in Chicago. One was in California. I was spending so much time talking to the Illinois Department of Employment Security about a $46 tax (laughs) bill that was like getting incorrectly processed and reprocessed. Um, I was spending a lot of time learning about workers' comp and payroll processors and... You know, at a certain point, I sort of looked up and I was like, I'm the world's most mediocre HR manager. I'm not actually talking to clients. I'm not actually thinking about architecture. I'm just sort of managing other people. And I decided to quit. Uh, I was just like, I can't. This is bananas. Um, And then the pandemic happened and, you know, architecture basically stopped for six months. So it was sort of fortuitous. Like I didn't actually really have to quit. It just, we all sort of disentangled ourselves. and um and that's that's where the book sort of ends in terms of my publicity career i'm like well and then i you know then i stopped doing it um and then a couple about a year ago i realized that i need to work for a living um that you know <laughs> i have this like running joke with my parents who are academics um that i have a running joke with them that you know i have a secret trust fund and they're just trying to teach me, you know, the value of perseverance, and then they're going to give it to me. And I'm 40. uh, And I have not yet received my secret trust fund. Um, So I I don't think that I have one. I think that's, that's how that worked out. So I sort of realized I had to work for a living. Um, And, you know, I'd learned a lot. I mean, as I say in the book, right, as I write about, like, I really, I made a lot of mistakes, right? I got too close to my clients. I, and it's, you know. I was sort of inspired by, I mean, Aline was really the closest model that I had because I knew these publicists and I'd been approached by them, but they didn't want to really guide me or mentor me because I would be competition. So the only mentor that I had was Aline, who was married to her client. So in retrospect, in the cold light of day, that's not a great model, right? but it was the only model that i had and so when my clients were like hey i'm going to call you at all hours of the night i was like great well you're paying me so i got to be available and when they asked me to write speeches for weddings that they were attending i was like that seems reasonable like i'm good at writing um and when you know when i got frustrated with them there was one firm i just was so i mean I would get so frustrated and I would read Aline's Letters to Arrow saying like, this is your business. You should handle this. So I would write to my clients, this is your business. You should <laughs> handle this. this. Is not a great way to conduct business. And so I kind of just like scrambled my own brain a little bit by you know, an original title for the book was What Would Aline Do? Because I really was like, well, what would she do in this situation? I'll just do that. And, you know, I think there's like sort of funny moments in the book where I'm like, well, this, you know, the subtext is like, I should not have done what Aline did. And so I decided to start again, to not follow Aline necessarily in all of her methods, you know, many of them were very good. Um, to not get myself entangled in like multi-state full-time employment law, <laughs> uh, which is just, you know, I'm good at admin. I enjoy it. But that was really, I think I'm still sending Illinois $46. Like we've just sent it back and forth for, for seven years at this point. Um, and so now I do it very, very differently. And I'm, you know, I'm still direct. I still, you know, give my opinion. I still don't really play office politics. Um, but I, I now it's more like, what would Eva do instead of what would Aline do? But she, in many ways, she was a fantastic model, mostly in terms of how to deal with the press, maybe less, so, less of a good model for dealing with the client, but a really, really good model for, you know, um, sort of examples that I have or she pretends to be really disorganized if, if she's sort of stalling on one publication, right? So there's a project and record wants it and forum wants it. And she sort of pretends that she's just like really um, kind of like uh, not that bright and doesn't really know what's going on. And she's like, Oh, everything is a mess. And it's, you know, sheer chaos. And like, I have no idea what's going on. And I, I just lost the photos and you know, we know that Aline is not, like losing photos, but that's a helpful sort of tag. So I do that too. You know, I'm just like, Oh, sorry. I, you know, like last I had norovirus, which was true, but it really got me out of a lot of jams that I had norovirus. I was like, Oh, sorry. I, you know, I don't know what to do. Um, well, let's, meantime, let's, let's not
0: spoil too many of the management seekers from the book. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Read, read on to learn how to, yeah. Buy the book to find out how to run a business without losing your mind. <laughs>
0: uh what but and of course, it was an experience that informed how you approached aileen's uh management or or or, or, or promotion of Arrow's career and, and you do that and you describe this in, in in detail with three projects in particular and the first uh and the first two is it's a bit of a comparative description of uh the kresge auditorium uh in uh Massachusetts and the Ingalls Ice Rink in Connecticut. I was I was wondering if you could talk a bit about uh, specifically how uh, Aline, you know, contributed to those projects and, and, and participated in them, and then also perhaps a bit as to how your own background helped to inform your your interpretation and understanding of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are so the Kresge Auditorium is this like very interesting sort of curved structure that has a gridded glass wall, sort of the easiest way to describe it. And Engel's rank is called affectionately the Yale whale. Um, and it has this really sinuous sort of catenary curve roof structure, which is an obvious sort of um, evolution of, of, Arrow's initial interest in curved concrete forms or curved forms. So Kresge Auditorium was published before Aline started being involved, and I looked at all the press about it, and the press was very boring, right? So all the articles were like, well, here's this new auditorium, and um, it is, you know, this many feet wide and this many feet high, and it is made out of these materials, and that's that's what we've got for you folks, right? And then the Yale Whale had a nickname, and um, there was a lot of sort of anthropomorphizing of it. Uh, You know, people were like, it looks like a whale. It looks like a turtle. Um, There was a lot of discussion about sort of this, the soaring roof and how that could make people feel and all the hockey games. And it was just much more narrative, right? There was much more sort of drive. There was much more coherence in the way that it was described. The images were much more compelling. And my argument is that, you know, she was involved in the publicity of that one, and that she would not have allowed a release to go out that said, you know, it is just these dimensions by these dimensions, and here are the materials. So the Kresge project, I think, is really, really interesting. But all the press about it is, like I said, it's, it's, it's pretty boring. Um and then Ingle is a sort of the the middle project, and then the TWA terminal is where she really shone. You know, so there's um, there's this great New York Times article from 19, I think 57 or 58, and and the title is "Bones for a Bird." And um, there's sort of this development of this whole metaphor that the project is a soaring bird. It's a bird in flight. It's a raptor that's just landed. You know, it's also inspired by a grapefruit. Uh, I have a whole section about you know, how she sort of created this moment, this anecdote that about a grapefruit that Arrow uses later. Um, so that's sort of the, the way that I start to trace her influence. And I came to that because that's what I was doing. Right. So I would talk to an architect. I mean, I sort of developed this process, um, and not to give away my, my secrets, but one of the one of the processes was, you know, doing an interview with an architect. And I would say, well, tell me about this project. And they would say, oh, well, the gray water recycling system is really amazing. And I would say, okay, so when Dwell Magazine calls you and says, tell me about this project, please don't open by talking about the gray water recycling system, right? What else is there? And this is like a true example, right? And so they say, well, you know, we really liked the, you know, the the other engineering of this and this, right? Because architects are obsess my friend Joe pointed this out. He said architects are obsessed with pain. And so the the part of the project that was the most painful for them is the one that they think is the most important. So I was saying to him like architects pick the worst photographs routinely. Every architect that I know for their like flagship image, they will just pick the worst photo. And his hypothesis was like, yeah, it's because that is the part of the project that they almost, you know, screwed up, but then they, they didn't. And so they're so excited about it, but it just, you know, just looks like whatever, a stare or something. That's the achievement
0: of which they're the proudest.
1: Exactly. Because it caused the most pain. So I think this is just such a great theory. Um, So with my own clients, I would say, okay, well, you know, tell me what happened when you first went to the site. And in this case, the client said, well, I went to the site and there was this tree and it reminded me of my childhood. And so I sat under the tree and I thought about like the passage of time and the changing of the seasons and like life and death and birth and rebirth and like, you know, all is dust. And I was like, okay, that's great. Right. So open with that. Don't open with like, you know, we figured out what to do with the toilet water you know and he was like oh okay you know and then this beautiful story was written by a really really wonderful writer and there is discussion of like the tree and the way that the house changes with the seasons and like all this stuff and so i was sort of introducing this kind of narrative clarity you know what i what i call in the book the sort of legibility which which is a very interesting idea to me that there are buildings that are legible you know, I'm interested in how we read buildings. And my argument, of course, is that we read them because we have actually read language about them. And so we are sort of incepted in a way. Um, and so when I was reading about Aline doing that and, and I was doing that, I sort of thought, yeah, there's a way in which... You know, I think storytelling is a very, like, overused kind of business thing now, right? Everybody's like, we're going to storytell the dishwasher, you know, this dishwasher. And I'm like, okay. But I do think that there's really something to be said, particularly in architecture, about the way in which personal narratives inform a project, right? They inform the construction of a project, but they also inform the reception of a project. Um, And so that was you know, I just realized, like, I was telling my clients what to say based on, you know, a few ideas that we kept repeating. Um, I would say there's sort of, you know, you can kind of get like three big ideas into a piece of press, right? You don't want to get like 25. And so the Yale whale is a good example, right? It's the Yale whale. So that makes me interested in, it's going to make me think about animals. It's going to make me think about Yale, Right, it's gonna make me think about all these things in a in a very overtly simple nickname.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you have this very personal chapter where you talk about how you lost your 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 favorite client to 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 an illness. And and you use that to inform how Aline had to process the loss of not just her husband, but this person with whom she was working for, you know, all of its frustrations that she might've been feeling near the end. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, talk a bit about that that and and how Aline, basically what happened with Aline in terms of her relationship after her husband passed away.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, those two chapters are, I think, really heartbreaking. So, mine is called on the on the loss of a client and friend and and it's about uh lewis butler this really just like sophisticated iconoclastic just like lovely person who ran butler armston architects which has since you know been taken over by his mighty trio of of um uh it's it still exists and it's still being run um but he was just my favorite client. I mean, he was just so lively and cool. He was really, really cool. He had this awesome house that we published in the Chronicle and he had an artist do a mural in the walkway and he had these like pillows that said ambient on them. And he also had like a... <laughs> framed you know it wasn't the constitution obviously but he had some like historical early americana framed document that was pretty incredible so he was just like voracious consumer of culture he was really interested in like the new he was he wanted to be around young people and um yeah you know when he died and i remember just feeling like really sad and um And he was so young. I mean, now that I'm ancient, I mean, I just think he was basically a child, you know, when he he died. Um, So it was really, really tragic. And he was basically the same age that Arrow was when Arrow died. Uh, So, right. So I was sort of dealing with this. And... Um, not really sure how to navigate it you know professionally. um I'd kind of stopped working for him by that point, so it was really just like i mean literally like the month before, so it was just like things were changing, it was a pandemic um so that was my experience of of losing a client and friend, and it was surprisingly you know devastating and then, like I said, you know. Arrow died really suddenly. He, he had a brain tumor. Um, he went to the doctor. He was like, you know, I'm not feeling well. And he was diagnosed with a brain tumor and he died basically two weeks later. And I sort of opened that chapter by describing Aline's various cables to, you know, interested, uh, colleagues to the press, to her friends. And she had to publicize his death right she literally had to publicize it she had to let people know um and i trace the way in which her private grief was kind of subsumed into this professional role where she had to show the office that the office would survive right so there's these partners kevin roche ed lacy she kind of i'm not you know i haven't seen the documents, if documents exist about what she actually did with them, but the office did survive. It kept going. She also had to reassure his clients like TWA. Um, And she had to kind of protect his legacy or she didn't have to, but she chose to. And I just find this a kind of heartbreaking example of, you know, the whole book is so much about like bringing ourselves to work right. And having emotions at work. And there's this great book that I'm reading by Ann Kramer called it's always personal. And it's basically an argument for, you know, having emotions at work and, and, and sort of against this idea that we have our professional lives where we're sort of, you know, automatons and then we have our personal lives. But I was so interested in this like real moment of collision between Aline's personal grief and personal feelings and her responsibility to the office, to Arrow's legacy, to all of that. And that I didn't have to deal with, with Lewis, you know, I was really just sort of like an outside publicist and, um, you know, he always made me feel like an integral part of the office. But by that point I was in New York and we obviously weren't, you know, uh, I was not married to him. Um, (laughs) and so that, you know, that was different, but I was really, really interested in those chapters and exploring, like sort of a counterpoint to my earlier chapters where I was like, listen, I got too close to my clients. And you know, that was a goofy move for X, Y, Z reasons. And in Lewis's case, like I realized only when he died that he'd actually been my friend, you know, and that that was a very pure friendship. And it was based on mutual respect and admiration and affection and a shared sense of humor and, you know, he sort of had this like great willingness to be taught and informed. And and so did I. Um, and Aline had a very different set of responsibilities and, and things that she had to deal with. But I think that she, you know, was absolutely heartbroken. I mean, there is a cable where she says like, heartbroken Aline. And I just remember like reading, I mean, I'm giving myself goosebumps right now because I remember reading those cables and just like imagining her having to put aside her tears, her grief, all of that, you know, and just do her job. And I think that's something that people understand now. You know, I think now there is sort of a, a new level of, you know, sort of per and Kramer's book, there is a new level of acceptance for the fact that we are people who have feelings, who have relationships, who have personal drives, all of that, who want things, um, at work and we want them at work and they happen at work. But I think that, you know, Aline really had to sort of play play this role more than ever and and then write a book about him. And the book that she wrote is called Saarinen on his work, you know, and, and it's Aline Saarinen on his work. I mean, she wrote it, but it's presented as him having written it or it being, you know, his words in some way. Um, and so that was sort of her final act of I would say devotion, and also her last job duty. right? And so the fact that those are the same thing, to me, is such an interesting, rich, textured kind of set of materials and ideas to, to think about, which is what I do in the book, right? I just sort of think through these very complicated relationships out loud on the page and kind of invite the reader to, to think through them with me.
0: Well, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Yes. So I, um, I got divorced, uh, in the middle of finishing this book, which also maybe colored some of it. Um, and to my great surprise, because I really wanted to get divorced, the divorce was just excruciating, um, And I realized that there's this sort of secret epidemic of of very short first marriages that kind of decimate people emotionally. Um, It was a very short marriage. It was my first marriage. And I remember looking for books that could comfort me And every book was like, I was married for 37 years to, you know, this great man who had an affair with my nanny. And I was like, oh no, that's not my situation. So, you know, in looking for a book about a a short marriage where I sort of realized like, I got myself into this pickle, you know, it's actually a little bit, it's actually probably a hundred percent my fault. Um, I realized that I, that I had to write the book that I wanted to read. Um, and so I've spent the last couple of years working on this, like very honest, very, um, you know, I was joking with a friend. the The basic premise of the book is you'll never believe this jackass, and at the beginning, the <laughs> jackass is my ex, and at the end of the book, the jackass is me. Right? So the so the journey, the hero's journey, is of realizing that I am in fact the jackass in my marriage. Uh, and so that book is with my agent, um, and you know, we're we're uh, it's out. You know, it's it's gonna it's gonna hopefully find a home um and then i'm working on a novel about uh tiktok uh which you know is this very fun app and then i have another book idea that i'm going to talk to my agent about on monday that's a little bit more connected to the to the arrow and lean book um that i'm that i'm pretty excited about that i don't want to say too much about but i like to kind of have you know i like to have like a book in the bank um, a book out and then a book, kind of, that's about to be ready to get typed. Um, so that's where I am right now, which feels like a really nice place.
0: Wow, you, you sound like a veritable waterfall of ideas for books. I and, mean, and,
1: I, it, <laughs> you know, I I like I, I like to work. I had my baby, and I was like, I think I'm just going to take. T-, and then within a month, I was like, No, I need to. No, I'm going to have a book idea. So this is how I stay sane. Um, is is by working. Yep.
0: Well, well, best luck with all those projects and and thank you for taking uh, the time to speak with us.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me, Mark.